0: you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, I will begin reading in verse 12. Therefore, With tears, this is the word of the Lord. Let he who has ears to hear hear this morning. Why is he saying this? Why has the author brought us to this point where he uh, summons us to to these commands, these exhortations, these imperatives? Before we get to the explanation of what this text is actually summoning us to, it's not that it's super complex. We just need to talk about it a little bit more. We need to understand that the context is this race that we are to run that has been set before us. That's the the whole flavor of this text, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews 12. There is a path before us that we are meant to run, and it is none other than the path, the, the race that God himself has set before us. The Christian life is something that must be endured. It must be done. It must be run. And so we're to look to Jesus as the goal and the object of our running this race. He's the inspiration for how we run as the preeminent example of how to run this race. And he's also the goal, the prize, once we cross the finish line. And we're This whole time, we're going to be struggling against sin. I'm just summarizing the verses that we've talked about so far. And as we wrestle against sin, struggle against sin, running this race before us, we encounter difficulty, but that difficulty is the discipline of the Lord. And as we endure hardship as discipline, we increase our righteousness and our assurance of being sons of God, sons and daughters of God. And and all of it is towards something. It is not just for the purpose of living the Christian life in and of itself, like many other philosophies say. It is to gain something. It is to share in the very holiness of God. All these things might induce a type of spiritual tiredness or feebleness. And they might even cause us to shrink back from what we know we're supposed to do. We're not just supposed to understand what the christian life is and to to observe it with our intellect and see okay it's a race that we're to run and here's the nature of the race and here's the degrees of difficulty we might experience and why we can't just look at it with our minds it is something we must do we must do something about it you've actually got to get up and run not literally but figuratively every single day is part of this arduous journey that we're on to no less than gain Christ. And we must get to it, and we must live in accordance with it. But often, we lack the strength and the will to do the very things that we know that we're supposed to do. And the author knows this. He has deep pastoral concern for his audience. So, to answer this lack of energy that we can experience, this lack of will. And he acknowledges our weakness and frailty. He exhorts us to address all of it in the proper way. As we look at these verses, there's this massive point, this massive uh prerequisite that you've got to understand. Or understand, It's an exegetical point that you need to consider. All of these exhortations in the verses I just read, verses 12 through 17, all of them are commands, but they're all in the plural. It is, you all together do this. You all together do that. It is not All of you make sure that each of you privately are doing these things. It is all of you ensure that all of you together are doing this together. The Christian life is not a solo quest. It's not an autobiography. It's not a character documentary about you. The body of Christ is what is important. Not ourselves as selves. It is the community of faith. Not the individual that is most important. Every imperative in this section, every command, could be joined with a y'all. I'm from Texas, and that's okay to say. But you could expand it out to be more proper and say, you all do this together. That is what these verbs mean. It doesn't always mean that when we find a plural verb in the Bible that it's something that we all have to do. I can think of a few examples, but we'll move on. But the context shows us that that is exactly what this means. So what is the context and structure? How does it prove that these commands that I just read are for all of us to obey together? And to last for time... I would love to get into detail into the technical side of how this is all related to all of us doing this together, but we don't have time. You'll have to take my word for it. But in short, the main argument for why we should understand these exhortations as for all of us to obey together is that it would be completely crazy for the author of Hebrews to say everything he said up to this point about the community of faith and how we're to exhort one another. And every other of the exhortations he's giving, let us, he says multiple times in chapter 10, and then for him to make the switch to say, okay, now here's how you work it out in the most preeminent way, all by yourself. It doesn't work. It would make, make no sense for the author to say that. It would make no sense for him to come to this text, which is a unifying foundational command, and for him to all of a sudden mean something like, all of you obey it privately. It doesn't work within this book, and it won't work within the text itself. And why am I laboring to prove this to you? I could have just said, like, these commands are for all of us, and move on and tell you what they are. Why uh, beleaguer the point? Why make it a, a big deal up front? Because the heart of this passage, grammatically, is this exhortation. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no one includes you, but the reason it's not phrased that way, it's not says, make sure that you don't fail. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say make sure you don't fail. It says make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's looking outwardly. You are meant to ensure that none of those among you, none of these among you, fail to obtain the grace of God, or translating it more literally, forfeit the grace of God. And this is now the fifth time that God has spoken to us through the author of Hebrews and commanded us to commit ourselves to the body in order to ensure that we all make it home safely. We've spent a great deal of time Addressing these very things in this whole sermon series on Hebrews, the first one we encountered, Hebrews 2, 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end I spent 10 sermons on that one and from hebrews 4:14 4, through 16 let us hold fast our confession And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Six sermons on that one. So in total, we've had at least 19 sermons that in some way, major point or minor point of the text, underscore this need for the community of believers to take part in making sure that none of you fail to obtain the grace of God. That's over a fourth of the sermons we've done on Hebrews. And that's not even counting the sermons on the apostasy passages in 3, 6, and 10. That's part of why I chose Hebrews, to focus on this very point. And now we come to one more. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Another translation would be to say it this way, pay careful attention that no one forfeits the grace of God. The context, as I said earlier, is this idea of a race. And running a race, you can do certain things that forfeit your running. In the analogy, if you were to cheat or to do performance-enhancing drugs or to take a shortcut that wasn't the official track, you'd be disqualified. See to it that no one forfeits the grace of God in your running of this race together. It's part of the imagery at work here. So, a question. Have these truths that we've been looking at through this whole series on Hebrews changed anything for you? Are you moved off dead center? Do you live and engage as if the eternal security, holiness, and perseverance of each other depends on it, depends on you? It's not that God needs your help, He doesn't, but He will hold us responsible for each other because he has ordained that the way he will ensure that his own will make it home safely is through, in major part, our own care for one another. These texts don't make sense otherwise. We have to explain it away with exegetical gymnastics to make it say something else. Salvation is of the Lord. You don't save anybody but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And in part, what enables you to endure to the end is your care for one another. What needs to change? Do you really believe in a real place called heaven and a real place called hell? It ought to result in living in a type of community that we're talking about here, where we ensure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, And we shouldn't cross people off our list. This text isn't necessarily about missions or evangelism the way we traditionally define it. It's not going to other people and telling them the good news. Those who have never heard, that's an important endeavor and we should give as much as we can to that endeavor. However, that's not what this is talking about. This is those among you. Who are confessing Christ to ensure that they don't end up there on the final day saying, Lord, Lord, and the Lord Himself answering, I never knew you. To ensure that that doesn't happen, you have to live this way with each other. Does that describe you? Does this text describe your life? Is this how you're behaving towards your brothers and sisters and towards yourself? This passage, and the passages we read earlier from the book of Hebrews and many others in the New Testament, give us insight into God's means of grace that He's given us to keep us safe between now and glory. This passage, especially that little bit about Esau, uh, would merit much more than one sermon. But I'll try to cover all of this text today. And we'll have to move on with the rest of the exhortation. So now, 20 sermons, including this one, on this very idea, significantly touching on the idea of, it, of care and intentional involvement in the life of your brothers and sisters to ensure perseverance so that no one forfeits the grace of God. So, let's look at the statements closely with the rest of our time. Verse 12. Therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This text has a very sharp, get-it-together kind of flavor because of the nature of the verb, and I won't get into that, but a more literal translation would be something like this, and you can see how why they don't word it this way because it's a little clunky. Here's what it would sound like. Therefore, the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, strengthen That's what it's saying. It's it's calling us uh, to to a jarring attention, alerting us to the need to strengthen the knees and the hands. It's it's that important but never welcome wake-up call. The morning of an important job interview, or the first day of a new job, or uh, maybe you're starting a much-awaited-for road trip, and your alarm goes off at 3.30. And for a few moments... You're angry at the alarm clock, and you wish that you could sleep more, but you remember why you said it and what it is you've got to get to because of the alarm. And so it's, it's jarring. It's, a, it's an assertive command. Wake up! Strengthen what is feeble and what is weak, but we need to hear it. Because we'll never get to the new opportunity or the job or the trip if we don't listen. This one verb in this text, in in the original, is strengthen. But it has the flavor of rebuilding. The idea is is to heal something or to build up something, to, to add support to something or to repair damage even. It's like Jesus says in Revelation 3 verse 2, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. The implication is that and this is the encouragement from the text, is that in Christ, by His Spirit, you have what you need to do this. Or more appropriately, we have what we need as a church to do this. We don't just sit around and wait for God to strengthen our weak knees or to lift up our drooping hands. By His Spirit working in us, we have what we need for this. So do it. It can be so discouraging, though, when you take this individually. You, by yourself, Christian who's struggling and has drooping hands and weak knees, strengthen yourself. That doesn't doesn't appeal at all. But he's saying, you, all of you, together, lift up your drooping hands. The the hands that are among you are drooping, drooping. Lift them up. The the knees that are weak among you, build them up. It was never meant to be a solo quest. In fact, the gifts that God has given you, or even if you don't feel you have many gifts at all, or any, Through the powerful ministry of presence, you can strengthen your brothers and sisters even when you don't have any strength yourself. How can I be of the help? I have weak knees and drooping hands as well. I don't feel particularly zealous to run this race that is set before me. How could I help my weak, weary brother? The powerful ministry of presence, just by spending time together in the Lord, it can happen. So, how can we pay careful attention to make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God or forfeits the grace of God? First, heed the wake-up call. This is a summons. Strengthen what is weak. This is a sacred trust to you as a Christian from God Himself that you're to be involved this way in the lives of your brothers and sisters. On the one hand, you are not as strong as you think you are. You're not strong enough to live this Christian life as an individual quest or an individual trek or race. But you are not as useless as you might think. Strengthen one another, and in so doing, you will find your strength. Verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So we have the imagery of hands, drooping hands, weak knees, and now we have feet. But before we strengthen our feet or heal them, as the text gets to, the analogy uh, artistically shifts to something else. It's it's a little bit hard to see with how the, the English translations render it, But the idea is that we need to make sure that the path we are on is a straight one. It's more an issue of the eyes. Where are you looking? Are you looking towards the goal, the finish line, and running in a straight line? The idea isn't that we're supposed to go and forge a trail. Right? That's not the idea. We're not, we're not going and bulldozing down rocks and stuff to make a straight path. It's that we're supposed to be set our attention in a certain way towards Jesus from verses one through three and make our path straight. So we're not veering all over the place. Usually, we damage our feet if, if you do. If you ever had a foot injury, it's because you walked on something slippery. Or crooked, or maybe an uneven surface, and missed a step and hurt your foot. And I freak out with all the ice up here, people running around on it. It's crazy. We're going to have concussions. And I have to say to my son, Ransom, he's at that age where he'll, he'll keep looking at you and run the other way. And I tell them, look where you're going, right? It's a simple, basic thing. You gotta learn or, you know, perish, essentially. Look where you're going. That's the idea here. Look where you're going. Keep your feet going straight. Make a straight path to the goal. The assumption here is that your feet need strengthening or healing, right? That's what the second half says. So that what is lame, Right? It just, the author just assumes that we, each of us may have, or, or many of us may have lame feet. But we can't sit on the side, stop running the race to let our feet heal. Right? That, that's what it's saying. Make straight paths for your feet. That in, in, in our attempt to run the race directly towards Christ, it will have a healing effect. They must be healed on the job by us not taking wrong turns or bad paths. There is a lot of uneven ground, uncleared paths, icy conditions, and you don't want to go there with your lame feet. And if you take your eyes off the goal, Jesus himself, then you will, you will veer off the clear path into all kinds of trouble. And if you do, it's going to put your feet out of joint. And some of you might be making things much harder on yourself because you're allowing things in your family, things in your work, things in your relationships, or things in your personal life to cause you to stray from the path. And you're not looking where you're going. And so you slip or miss a step. And instead of having a lame foot anymore, you get a compound fracture and you completely dislocate your foot. The idea is this. Don't presume on the grace of God. Believe for certain that the way is narrow and the door itself is also narrow. And that it is very easy to run off the rails. You got to keep your eyes on the prize. Run a straight path. Don't veer to the left or to the right. And the idea, again, is that we do this together. Again, the sense is not us out there individually cutting a new trail or together cutting a new trail or blazing a new trail. Jesus has already done that for us. That's why he's called the forerunner. But we have to avoid attempting shortcuts together We have to set this clear course together. We have to shine a light on the path together. We have to work together to not be distracted. We have to look to Jesus together and encourage each other when we can tell that our brother and sister is not looking to Jesus and veering all over the path and causing all sorts of trouble in their life to look to Christ again and to set a straight path. This is how Lane puts it, the the commentary that's been most helpful to me through this study. He says, encouraged by the example of the witnesses referenced in chapter 11, and especially the example of Jesus, which we see in verse 2 of chapter 12, men and women of faith cannot waver, but move in a straight direction, certain of their goal. The mandate of verse 13 indicates an eschatological orientation. That's a big word. If you learn that, you can just throw that in whenever you want and sound really smart. The idea is that it's a, it's a, it's a type of living that looks towards the end. It's a, it's a end of all days orientation of your life. That your life is built around the end, not the beginning or goals you have along the way, but the very, very end. And you reverse your, reverse engineer your life from that day. That's, I mean, this is why we do the things we do as a church, hopefully. To run this race together, to keep our eyes on the same goal together. That's why I want to make things available for you, the different things that we have and do as a church. There's a consumerism in Christianity especially when it becomes a subscription-style consumerism. I'll pay my dues, I'll come and consume what I want, and end my participation then and there. You're robbing the time and gifts that God has given you for your brothers and sisters. Do you believe that it's your job to ensure that no one here fails to obtain the grace of God? This is how we take care to make sure that doesn't happen. Stop balkanizing our efforts to dozens of different things and prioritize the church family. Live your life in view of the great and awesome day of the Lord where you, not just me as your pastor, but you will have to answer in some degree for your brothers and sisters in this room. We stay the course by helping each other stay on the narrow path. And maybe the reason it's so difficult to find modern examples of the type of love and care that we see in the first church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 is that we haven't yet prioritized the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters above our own, or at least at the same level. If we did, I think it would reorientate everything. Lane again says this, If those who are stronger will move in a straight direction toward the goal, the brother or sister who is lame will follow more easily and will be healed of his hurt. The prospect of healing for the weakest of their number adds a word of encouragement to the clear directive to the community. It's a long way of saying this is the main way that you endure and you help others endure by helping others Others run the race in a straight path that is set before us. The implication, clear statement of this text is that we don't set the straight paths for our, if, I'm sorry, if we don't set the straight path for our feet, then we will together suffer harm. And this echoes back to chapter three. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. If you're not exhorting one another the way the Scriptures command, then it is very likely, even inevitable, that many of you will fall away. So if we don't collectively run this race in a clear, straight path and help each other to do the same, then many of us will suffer harm. But if we do work together to set that straight path for our maimed and lame feet, then we will be healed together. It's kind of the the idea of the the chicken and the egg, or the the cart and the horse. Community comes first. A lot of people operate the opposite way. Isolate, get stronger, better, have something to offer, and then reenter community. That can't be how it happens. Community comes first. We come to each other with our brokenness, with our lame feet, and seek help. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This carries over from the last verse, but the question is is like this. Uh, how can you strive for peace with everyone if you don't entrust yourself to people? If you're just off by yourself, living your own Christian life, doing your own thing, how can you even strive for peace with everyone? It doesn't work. You've got to be in community first to even have the basic prerequisites to obey this command. Striving for peace with the family of God in your local church is what this is talking about. This is different than what Paul says in Romans. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But the context there in Romans is with outsiders as well. People who are not Christians. People who aren't a member of your church. Non-believers. The idea here, instead of a kind of passive, well, I've done everything I can... The idea here is towards the body of Christ and we're supposed to strive or pursue peace with everyone. We're supposed to invest in, make actions, do things differently in our lives so that peace can be possible. Those in our own foxhole, in this struggle, in this race, in this battle against sin with us, strive for peace with them strive it is not a passive well I've done all I can do I'll relieve the rest to God for peace with this brother or sister in Christ this word strive it, it, like I said it carries the idea of pursue it, it could be translated this way to run swiftly in order to catch a person or things chasing something and so here's a question Would an objective observer of your life look at it and say, this person is striving for peace with all of his brothers and sisters? If not, there has to be a change. And I won't belabor this point because I don't want the burden of obedience to become distasteful to you this morning. But before we get to the next thing that we're to strive for, holiness... I want you to remember or be alerted to for the first time a theme in the New Testament. This idea of unity or peace, love with holiness. Almost in every place that we encounter one or the other, the other is there. When Paul finally gets to his big application section in Romans, he talks about offering up spiritual worship, this idea of, of holiness. But then he immediately talks about brotherly love. It happens in every other place where where holiness is held out and presented to us as a goal. Unity, peace, love within the body of Christ are right there. And that's exactly the point, which John tells us in 1 John very clearly. You can't separate them. There is no separation of holiness and peace and unity. Would an objective observer say of you that these two truths are what you strive for? If they were to look at your life and say, what what does this person really strive for? Is it peace in the body of Christ and holiness? Or is it career, education, retirement, recognition, establishing your family, more ministry opportunities, wealth, stability? We must strive, brothers and sisters, for peace and holiness Because the stakes are so high, as is indicated in this text, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What does it mean to strive for holiness, to chase swiftly after holiness? This sounds a little bit different than the holiness we saw Uh, back a few verses where it says that we may share His holiness. That seems to be speaking of the, the reality that will happen one day when we're made perfect and brought into the community of the Trinity. This seems to be something a little bit different because we're supposed to pursue it, and the idea is that we could actually overtake it and gain it. They're connected. But the idea is this. Those who have been made holy by Christ, given that inheritance, are the ones who strive to live in accordance with that very holiness. Holiness, especially in the book of Hebrews, is something that God does. He accomplishes it by the sacrifice of His Son. He makes holy forever those who are in Him. But our lives must reflect that holiness, or it shows that we haven't been made holy. The same idea is in 1 John 3. And I'm sorry, I I reference this verse all the time, even if I don't plan to. But here we go again. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we are, or what we will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What a great hope. But He continues. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We've been made God's children. Our destiny is set to be like Christ with him when we see him as he is. But everyone who hopes in this way will be about the business of purifying himself. He will chase, pursue holiness. That's the idea. And remember, this is not... Uh, Go off by yourself and strive to be holy, right? A, a, A monastic type of life. It's married right here and throughout the New Testament with unity and love and peace with your brothers and sisters. God is not interested in a version of holiness that is isolated and not commingled with the love of God and the love of brothers and sisters. That form of holiness does not exist. And he says, this statement, which is jarring, but we need to hear it, without which no one will see the Lord. This this text could be a whole sermon or, or many on its own with its significance. It harkens back to the apostasy passages in chapters 3, 6, and 10. And it also looks forward to what we're about to hear about Esau. It points towards the next verse of forfeiting the grace of God or failing to obtain it. But remember the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus told. The story goes that a master prepared a great wedding feast for his son. And all those who were invited at first didn't come. And so he sent his servants to grab everyone, compel them to come in. Because the wedding feast is going to be full for my son. But then as the master of the feast walked through all the guests who had gathered, he found someone who had no wedding garment. And he cast him out. I've avoided reading that passage to make the points that are there because of how severe that sounds. But in the Revelation to John, we get the answer. It was granted to her to wear pure linen, bright. The white linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's the point. If you show up, you got no wedding garment, no righteous deeds, no evidence that you were in fact made holy by the sacrifice of Christ, then you don't have the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you've been really made holy by God, this is the point. If you've been really made holy by God, you will actively work to live like it. So I want to give you a caution and an encouragement. I mean, this verse is heavy. I mean, hope you can see that. The caution is this. Repent. There's no other way to say it. If you continue in sin, if you make peace with it, you make yourself an enemy of God. And it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or how well you feel your relationship with God is going. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And an encouragement, we all stumble in many ways every day there's a waging war against sin, a raging war against sin that we must wage, but you can do holiness. you can live a holy life it 's not always and in every way sin for you if you have the spirit. holiness is possible, and it is not some. Way out there, mystical concept of holiness. Faith is the way. And again, this would be a whole nother sermon, but simple trust in the Lord Jesus as you do even the most menial tasks, like washing the dishes or taking out the trash, is holiness insofar as you trust in Jesus and look to him as you're doing it. And this is how we pursue holiness together as we help each other live this way. As we pursue Christ together and dig our roots down deeply into the faith that we need. Verse 15, the first part. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And here we've come to the main heart of this passage. And I'll ask again, do you agree with the Bible, that this is your responsibility? I mean, does, do you just kind of like, oh, I don't, I'm not sure what that means, and just move on? Or do you take it to heart that this is what God is commanding you by His Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, throughout all time? See to it that no one, implication being among you, fails to obtain the grace of God. Pay careful attention so that no one among you forfeits the grace of God. Our lives and eternal destinies are intertwined, brothers and sisters. How would a person forfeit the grace of God? And that's what the word means. Like I said, it kind of harkens back to the imagery of a race. And is looking forward to the imagery of of disinheriting, of, of rejecting our birthright like Esau. How would a person forfeit the grace of God? God's grace, here, here's, here's something to think about as we think about forfeiting the grace of God. God's grace, except for the miraculous work of spiritual resurrection and the new birth, is resisted all the time. It's like the old hymn says, Oh, what grace we often forfeit. That's riffing on this very idea. But we do this All the time, we forfeit so much grace as we pursue sin or forget truth and don't live our lives pursuing peace and holiness. We're forfeiting grace all the time. But this text means something a bit more severe because it points towards Esau. There's something more deadly and dire in view here than just resisting. The point is this. We have to make sure for one another that none of us are doing what Esau did. Or else, they will not endure to the end. And only those who endure to the end will be saved. I mean, does it offend you for me to say that? I mean, I'm just quoting the words of Jesus that those who endure to the end will be saved. Don't assume that someone you know is safe and secure and born again. They might just be enjoying the benefits of Christian community Maybe they want their kids to be well-behaved or something or other. But they do not strive, even imperfectly, to pursue the holiness of God or peace with everyone. And in their hearts, they know that. If you really get down and ask them, like, what are you really pursuing? It's not holiness or peace with God. So it's not like they're, they're deceived necessarily, though we can deceive ourselves. But they don't see Jesus himself as the goal or as the treasure hidden in the field for which a man will go and sell everything he has. They don't They don't treasure Christ like that. They enjoy his benefits, the benefits of the community. Maybe not in a church like this necessarily. We don't have everything taken care of perfectly. But there are a lot of places you can go and be seen as a valued member of the Christian community. And it's really because of all the physical and in-this-life benefits you're getting. Because it's been made easy. Is that you? On the one hand, do not be overly harsh with yourself in that question. Our hearts can condemn us when God does not. But you must be honest. Do you know one another enough to know the answer for your brothers and sisters? Is this one making a trade like Esau did? Do you know them well enough to answer? That's the only way we can keep this command, to ensure that no one forfeits the grace of God, to really know one another. There's no advanced uh, spiritual one-step-to-another process, an algorithm where we can answer this clearly. There's just no substitute for spending time together and knowing one another, so that we can, in fact, help in the ways that they really need to ensure that they don't forfeit the grace of God. And no, an hour and a half to two and a half hours on a Sunday morning, two to three times a month, is not going to cut it. The author of Hebrews himself says, every day. And we're trying. We've got group text, Bible reading plans, men's groups, Sunday nights, prayer, text, and emails. But consider your involvement with your brothers and sisters in the context of Judgment Day in view of this command. Does your level of commitment, and I'm not saying it has to be in the exact ways that I've just described or the things that we're offering. Heck, make it your own. Do it your own way. But does your life reflect the fact that you need to ensure that your brothers and sisters don't forfeit the grace of God? Having this glorious community together with brothers and sisters, is worth moving across the country for. It's worth quitting your job for. It's worth changing all your life's plans to be a part of that kind of community. Because eternity hangs in the balance, brothers and sisters. And every generation of believers prior to us has had to make significant costly sacrifices to make sure that this was the case among them and we were fools if we think that we are exempt. Second part of verse 15. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexual, immoral, or unholy. We could read it this way because it's all tethered to the central verb. Each of you see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many of you become defiled. And also, each of you see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. And there, believe me, there are tons of Old Testament references going on in these few verses, and we just don't have time. Otherwise, I would love to read them. The idea here is, again, that you are personally responsible for your brothers and sisters, but not just them in a general sense. You're responsible for their personal life. Each person will be judged for his own life when we stand before God, but part of the life we will have to answer for is this command to be intentional and active in making sure that these things don't happen among us. None of us are the Holy Spirit and we can't, Perfectly prevent anyone from doing anything. Those of you who are parents know this. Oh, that, way, that we did have the effect of the Holy Spirit sometimes in the hearts of those that are under our care. But you, in fact, wield the sword of the Spirit. This is how He changed your life. You can wield it in the lives of your brothers and sisters. And so this must be shunted towards an encouragement. This isn't all just heavy and downcast. When the hymn sings this, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you feel it? Because I certainly do. Is that a reality for your Christian life that you feel that the old man raising its ugly head again and drawing you away from the one that you truly love? The encouragement is that you don't need or have the strength to resist that on your own. You've been given a massive help in the body of Christ as they do their responsibility towards you to make sure that you're not drawn away. And you've been given to them. And no, you don't have to know everyone. Okay? That would be extremely burdensome. Trust me. To know everyone intimately and fully. To know whether or not, where they are with the Lord, if they're on the road to forfeiting the grace of God or not. You don't have to know everyone, but you must know someone outside of your immediate family and provide this mutual care for them. Or you are in disobedience. There's no other way to say it. Start with one. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, with all of His strength and spiritual might, just had really 12, and even among that, He, res- he restricted it in many cases to three. So start with one, to provide this soul care to one another and ensure that they are not making the same trade as Esau. These exhortations together are examples of how we make sure no one forfeits this grace, temporarily or eternally. Because bitterness, if left unchecked and not repented of, will cut you off from the grace of God now and forever. Sexual immorality, if left unchecked and not repented of, will cut you off from the grace of God now and forever. Profaneness, if it is left unchecked and not repented of, will cut you off from the grace of God now and forever. There's another way of reading these exhortations even metaphorically because it's looking forward to Esau. The words translated here sexually immoral or unholy That could be something like apostate or profane as we look at the example of Esau because there's no evidence necessarily as far as Genesis is concerned of sexual immorality with Esau. The idea is he preferred the physical over the spiritual and that is the most profane or immoral thing you can do. He preferred a meal over the blessing of God. So remember a few weeks ago, we talked about making a bad trade. We're all making trades. Esau made a trade. He traded his birthright for a meal. Jesus traded the joy that he could have had in his life for the joy that he was going to have on the far side of the cross. We're all making exchanges. And you can make bad trades. The idea is not to make trades like Esau did. He's the prototype, so to speak, of everyone who would ever throw away the heavenly reality for the sake of an earthly one. He's, if you will, a paragon of apostasy. He's the preeminent example of a profane one. You might think through the Bible and pick other people as better examples of the profane one, like some of the kings of Israel, Manasseh. But Esau is the one the author selects because he had the blessing of God right there. And he says, nah, I don't care. I want a meal. The point is, if you despise God by loving your sin, not caring that much at all, you are making a trade. This does not mean we'll ever stop stumbling. (laughs) In fact, the more mature you become as a Christian, the more aware you are of how desperately we stumble all the time as the Lord exposes more and more of our heart and the old man that still must be put off and put to death. But it does mean that at some point, and only God knows when and where that is, you can your, love your sin or love your faithless behavior so much And love the pleasures of this world so much that you can no longer repent. And the author reminds us of the story of Esau to prove his point. Verse 16, second half. See that no one is unholy or sexually immoral like Esau, or profane and apostate like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I hope you remember the story. We don't have time to rehearse it all again. In the end, he was not sad because he despised his birthright. He's not repenting of his despising of the blessing or the birthright. He's only sad because he missed out on the blessing. It's not real repentance to be sad about the consequences of your sin. That's the sadness we see in Esau. And in fact, he says he's going to kill Jacob afterwards, and he realizes that it happened, even though he was the one who despised it back with the incident with the soup. He wanted to get his birthright back, but he didn't want to repent. And repentance was no longer an option, because his heart was hardened. So the point is, again, don't be like Esau. We should make it a t-shirt, right? Don't be like Cain from earlier in Hebrews, and don't be like Esau, okay? But how are we to relate to this story? We don't, we don't think in terms of birthrights. And lentil stew, I'm sorry, isn't the best. So I don't know who would trade what for lentil stew. I'm sorry. It's a blood type thing, I've been told. But this church that this was written to, the book of Hebrews was written to, and for us, how how do we relate to this? How can we make sure that we don't make the same type of trade? If you look back to the example of Moses in chapter 11, I won't read the whole thing, but he preferred the reproach of Christ over the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's the same exchange that's before each and every one of us. Do you value and treasure Christ in association with Him, even if that comes with reproach, or or do you desire the fleeting pleasures of sin? The idea is that you can make a trade, even if nothing outwardly looks like it's changed. You can give up on Christ, and you can shrink back and no longer have confidence in His saving ability. You can reject or disbelieve His worth. You can begin to reject the blessings that God has promised. They don't matter that much. I don't care that much to live in order to obtain them. You can begin to be ashamed of Him or offended by Him. Don't be like Esau, unable to repent, wanting the blessing, seeking it with tears, being so sorry for the consequences. But no... Because God had rejected him. That's terrifying. One more time from Lane. The objective possibility of repentance is created only by the action of God. And is conditioned by a time limit determined by him. It does not depend on human will. God alone determines its beginning and end. Meaning the window of repentance. God's the one who decides how long that window is open for you. One can only repent as long as God's grace is available. The idea is this, brothers and sisters, friends. Today, there is still time. The door is still open. The way is not yet shut. Christ still cries out, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The magnitude of grace in this age is not that you don't have to repent and turn away from your sin. You do. But the magnitude of grace is this, that the door will always stand open until Christ returns. Or you perish. To anyone and all who repent, if you will come to him, he will by no means cast you out. So we must look to Jesus as goal and reward in this way to prevent ourselves and others from making this damnable trade of our faith in Christ for the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is the reward. We passed over it fairly quickly because it was phrased in the negative, without which no one will see the Lord. The implication though, brothers and sisters, if you pursue peace with everyone and you live in accordance with the holiness that, with which God has already given you, if you're in Christ, then you will see the Lord himself. Just as the author said back in verse 2, looking to Jesus, of course, it's it's great to keep him there as our goal as we run, and it seems like we're not getting any closer. Maybe we're even uh, losing some steps as we try to run this race faithfully. And it's not just seeing him as objective. it's It's knowing for certain that through faith, I will see him. I will gain the prize. No matter how imperfectly or weakly I pursue and endure in this race. If I endure through faith, I will see the Lord. That is the hope for the believer. And that is the motivation to live in this way with each other. That you have a part. You are a shareholder in each other's Sanctification and glorification. You get to live, our, we get to live our meaningless lives seen from the outside. They're just taking out trash, doing the little menial chores we have. It seems meaningless, but all of that can be shunted towards making sure that each other see the Lord one day. This is why he was sent. And lived and died in your place for your sins. So that through faith you would be made alive, forgiven, sanctified. But all of that for something else. Just as he asks in John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's why you're saved. That's why He's sanctifying you. That's why He's drawing you in and setting the goal of Christ and the example of Christ before Him so that you will see Him. If you now see Him with the eyes of your heart, do not turn away. Pursue Him. Make sure everyone else in this room sees Him and pursues Him. That's what it means to live the Christian life. And He is worth all endurance all discipline, all rigor, and all suffering to behold and have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great salvation that you've given us. Thank you that even though the limits of time make it so that There are so many things we didn't have a chance to talk about with this text or important questions that come up after it's explained. I pray that your grace would work by your Spirit to help us understand and obey. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.